Let's turn to that word now. Old Testament reading is Psalm 90. This will be our scripture reading for this evening as well, uh, for the sermon. Psalm 90, that's page 529, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible there in the pew. Psalm 90, reading the whole psalm. This is God's Word. Let's give it our full attention. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reasons of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your children, and your, to your servants, and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. New Testament reading is First Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. We've just read about how God is our dwelling place. And it's that dwelling place that Peter uh, points the exiles that he's writing to to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, grant us. What we are not, make us. Even according to the image of your Son. It's for his sake we ask it. Amen. Robert Frost, great New England poet, uh, uh, has a short poem called Nothing Gold Can Stay. And it goes like this Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. Frost is saying there's nothing in nature that we see that stays golden, that, that, that has beauty that lasts. You know, whether it's the first green leaves you see come out in the spring that are so bright they look gold, or it's the the, the golden hour of the morning sunrise. Frost is saying it doesn't last. Just just like Eden didn't last. We've gone down to grief. Well, as far as I know, Frost was not an Orthodox Christian, but uh, he's like a secular echo here of some truths of Scripture, isn't he? We read this in Isaiah 40. All flesh is grass. All its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. Over and over, Isaiah, speaking the word of the Lord, says, we are a vapor. We do not last. We're like the grass that flourishes and then fades. And we read this also in James 4. He says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think of a, a morning where you see the fog out, but then a, a few hours later the sun's up and the, the fog is gone. James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says that's like what our life is like. It goes quickly. And we understand that, don't we? In our experience, it goes by quickly. And it does feel often like nothing gold can stay, even as Frost himself said. But what, what, what Frost doesn't understand, of course, is that this is not the whole story. This is not all there is to say about our lives. Scriptures tell us there's more. Yes, life's a vapor, life's a mist that is there and then is gone. It's, it's grass that springs up and then fades. But that's not all there is to say. And, and that's what this psalm is teaching us. It says, yes, there, there's this momentariness to human life, but God is everlasting. God lasts forever. He doesn't change. He, he is God forever and forever and forever. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of this psalm. There's a wonderful comfort in this psalm. In the eternity of God, This psalm calls us to know that God is everlasting. And it it tells us to take our comfort there. The psalm doesn't take, um, it doesn't doesn't give us a rosy, sentimentalized picture of life to comfort us. It gives us, in detail after detail, the realities of a momentary existence under the curse. It doesn't paint a, a rosy picture 
But it says there is a, there's a comfort in the everlasting God. The psalm, psalm is three sections. It starts by proclaiming this everlasting God in verses 1 and 2. So that's where we'll start. All right, so our, first, our first heading is everlasting God, verses 1 to 2. As we begin, let's take a, just a quick step back and look at the context here. We've been doing this as we've been working through the book of Psalms. Um, if you look down, if you have the Bible open, you see Psalm 90 there. Right above Psalm 90, you'll notice, probably, it says, Book 4. We're in Book 4 of the Psalter now, and we've been talking about how the, the Psalter is broken down into five books, five collections of Psalms within this one book. And each of those books is organized around uh, a, a theme. We've seen the, the first book of the Psalter was about confrontation, about God setting up his anointed king, David, to, 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 to fight the enemies of God's people and establish his kingdom through him. There's a confrontation. That's the main theme of the first book of the Psalms. And then we go to the second book of the Psalter, and we see that the kingdom's been established. And, and now God is is communicating out to the nations about this kingdom and this king, calling them to come and serve him, pay tribute to him, submit to him. Then we get book three. The big theme in book three of the Psalter is devastation. As everything goes wrong, as the kings turn away from God and God brings exile on them, we saw Psalm 74 talks about, gives us this really vivid picture of the destruction of the temple as as uh, the barbarians come in, the Babylonians come in, and they, they're swinging axes in the temple, smashing the wooden paneling, and they set it on fire. And we move on through, that, through book three, these psalms of devastation. We see uh, Psalm 88, the, the psalm that seems to end almost in despair with just a cry out to God for salvation and, and, and uh, no other signs of hope. We see Psalm 89 it talks about this like this, verses 38 to 39. You have cast off and abhorred. You've been furious with your anointed. You've renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. That's how this, this psalm, uh, Psalm 89, the last psalm in this book of Psalms of Devastation, book 3, ends with describing how God has seemingly rejected his anointed king that he set up earlier and, and rejected his people and even renounced the covenant. Verse 46 of Psalm 89, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? What man can live and not see death? The psalm's asking, where, where is God's kindness and his steadfast love, which he swore to David? The people are undone. What do you do in that situation? Well, you go back. And that's what the people do here. As, as we move to book four of the Psalter, coming out of that book of devastation and that close, closing of that book saying, the Lord has rejected us, we come into book four of the Psalter and we meet... Psalm 90. We see this psalm that takes us all the way back, back behind the covenant with David, back behind the, the, all the kings and uh, the judges and Joshua, all the way back to the bedrock of the covenant with Moses. They go back to Moses. Probably the oldest psalm in the whole Psalter. And they place it here. This is the kind of psalm the people of Israel need as they are in the throes of exile. 
So the word for this book of Psalms, the theme here is, is maturation, maturity, maturation. These are Psalms that show the people of Israel growing up into greater maturity as they understand that God is doing something for them through this exile. He's teaching them something. One, uh, the, the, the writer who I'm drawing a lot on for this series in the Psalms, O. Palmer Robertson, says this here. He says, By depriving them of kingship, priesthood, temple, and sacrifice, right, everything that makes Israel Israel, it seems to them, uh, uh, the, the, the faith, that faith of God's people experienced maturation through forced growth. God, through the exile, is growing His people up to understand something. And here in Psalm 90, we see it's not the promised land. Right? They've, been, they've been exiled from the promised land. And, and this is showing us it wasn't ever about the promised land. It was about God Himself being our dwelling place. The opening lines of the psalm. Let's look at them now. Verses 1 and 2. They're majestic lines, glorious lines, aren't they? Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses, uh, Moses wrote those words, um, which helps us understand a little bit about them. Right? Think about Moses. He didn't have a dwelling place. He, he was in Egypt for a while, then he sojourns in Midian for a while. He comes back to Egypt, leads the people out of Egypt. He's coming to the promised land, wanders in the wilderness with the people for 40 years, and then dies on a mountain looking at the promised land, but not able to go in. And he writes the psalm, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. His hope isn't in the promised land. His hope's in God as his dwelling place. And he doesn't just say this for himself, does he? He says it's for all generations of God's people and every time and place. All the way back to the patriarchs as they are wandering in tents in the promised land. All the way you know, through all the ages of God's people. God is our dwelling place. What kind of a home, right? That's what a dwelling place is. What kind of a home is God? Verse 1 says, God's our home. Verse 2 tells us what kind of home this is. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalmist starts by saying, look at the mountains. Think about the mountains. How old are the mountains? How, how sturdy, strong, and everlasting are the mountains? And he says... Before they were brought forth, God was. God was. He's, he's, he's making this categorical break between the creation and the Creator. He's saying that the, the Creator is entirely separate from the creation. You can go back in time uh, through, through all the creation and, and, and you'll find a beginning point. But then there's God. He is eternal. Eddie's working on his catechism right now. Uh, and he, he knows well the answer to the first question of the children's catechism, who made you, God. And, and recently he started asking me what he thinks I think is a real stumper. Daddy, who made God? And it's a chance to tell him, God is eternal. He's everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Unsearchable in his years. There is no shadow or variation due to change, we read in the Scriptures. This is what the Bible tells us over and over. We're told His name is I Am. 
the one who is eternal. This is basic to understanding who God is, brothers and sisters. Um, sometimes people think of the eternity of God in, in kind of temporal terms. Like, because when we hear God is everlasting, it means that He just goes back and back and back in time. Further back in time than we could imagine, but still back and back in time. But that's not what the eternity of God means. It doesn't mean that He is just older than we are. Or that He'll outlast us. It means He's outside of time itself. Time didn't start till He created everything in Genesis 1.1. He is eternal the creator of time. For him, everything is an eternal present. That's why he says he's the I am. Herman Bothink, great Dutch theologian of the last century, wrote, Time is the duration of creaturely existence. Hence, there can be no time in God. From eternity to eternity, he is who he is. He's not a process of becoming, but a eternal being. Thomas Aquinas, great medieval theologian, says this, God's eternity is a complete and at the same time a full possession of endless life. Or Augustine, right, the great ancient church theologian. To God all things are present. Your today is eternity. Eternity is the substance of God which has in it nothing that is changeable. Think about the glories of God's everlasting being, brothers and sisters. He is utterly outside time. He's completely different from us in that. He is eternal. We, there's not a time when He doesn't exist. He is everlasting, unchangeable God. All the ages of this earth are nothing in comparison with Him. And Moses says, that's our home. That's our dwelling place. This this everlasting, glorious, holy Creator is our home. See what these first two verses of the psalm here bring together for us. Verse 2 gives us this glorious and uh, transcendent picture of God's eternity. He is everlasting God. And verse 1 says, that transcendent God is your dwelling place. Verse 1 is, is imminent, it's close. He is... This everlasting God has come down to be the very dwelling place of His people. This unchangeable God has bound Himself to changing time-bound man in the covenant. Loved ones, is He your home? Is, is this God, the eternal God, your dwelling place? What's, what's a home? What's, what is a dwelling place? It's a place you belong. A, it's a place you feel loved. A place you feel safe protected, a place where you have what you need to live and flourish and prosper? Is that place anywhere else for you but God? In your home or your family or, or, or uh, your country, your, your, your property, your house, your things? All those other things that we make into our homes, our dwelling places, are fleeting, momentary, changeable, fragile Moses says, God says, make me your dwelling place. I'm eternal. I cannot change. That's how the psalm starts. Shows us this glorious picture of the everlasting God. And then it turns, in light of that, and looks at 
man with a very, very honest perspective, right? This is the second part of the psalm, verses 3 to 12. The heading here is ephemeral man. We had everlasting God. Here we have ephemeral man. Ephemeral means changeable man. Verse 3 begins with this statement. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. The Hebrew word, therefore, destruction means dust. Not exactly the same words that's used in Genesis 3 when God says, Dust you are, to dust you shall return. But it echoes that. It's a similar word. And it means dust as well. This is God's sentence on the world. This is his curse. He's placed on the world for sin. You are dust. To dust you shall return. You used to hear that phrase. You'd go to a burial service and you'd get this great visual of this reality. You'd see, you'd see the casket lowered down into the grave and you'd see someone throw a handful of dirt on top of it and say those words, dust you are, to dust you shall return giving us this unavoidable reminder of the reality of the curse that we're under. We don't often see that or hear that now because our culture doesn't like talking about death, at least not, uh, not in that way. But the psalm here gives us this unavoidable truth and this very uncomfortable truth. All creation is under the curse of death. Verses 4 to 6 then go on. Paint a picture of life under the wrath of God. Verse 4 reminds us, a thousand years is a moment in comparison with God. If you lived for a thousand years, you'd still end. And your life would be a vapor and nothing before Him. Um, where Verse 5 says that the years, are, the years of our life are swept away like a flood of waters. They vanish like a dream or a sleep. They are like grass which is mown down and withers Isaac Watts, uh, the great hymn writer, wrote a well-known paraphrase of the psalm. We're going to sing it in a little while, but he had a couple other verses which aren't in the version we're going to sing. I was going to read just uh, a couple of the verses that are there in the, the hymn version we have, and then one verse that is not there. They go like this. The busy tribes of flesh and blood, with all their lives and cares, are carried downwards by the flood and lost in following years. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Like flowery fields the nations stand, pleased with the morning light. The flowers beneath the mower's hand lie withering ere tis night. Psalm 90 gives us this uncomfortably realistic picture of what our lives are and what human history is under the wrath of God. We're like grass and the lawnmower is coming. We're going to wither. Is this God's design? Is this what God made us for? No, not at all. So, so we, we read that in other scriptures. This isn't, this isn't God's intent that life be like this. Yes, we're created beings. We're not ever going to be eternal. But God made us for eternal life with Him. So why are things this way? Verses 7 and 11 give us the reason. Verses 7 through 11. It tells us there that it's because of our sin. That this is the reason our lives pass so quickly under the shadow of God's curse and coming death is our sin. Because God sees our sin. He knows our sin. And He is not going to pass over it because He's a just God and a holy God. Verse 
10 tells us our lives were only 70 or 80 years because of this. It tells us our, our lives are full of sorrow, labor, toil, trouble. This is the reason we get old, and this is the reason death comes. And as verse 9 says, we finish our years with a sigh. Because, verse 8, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. This is the reality of life under the curse of God. How do we respond to it? Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Skill for living, that's what wisdom is. To, to live well in this situation where we are under the curse of God and the coming of death. What do we need to do? Verse 12 says, number your days. The psalmist means, Moses means, realize your days are short, your days are numbered, and they're going to end with a sigh under the wrath of God, and you're going to perish if he does not forgive your sin. Live in the light of that. Back in 2002, there was this series of tragic sniper attacks that were apparently random happening on the Beltway in D.C. Perhaps some of you recall these. Um, an article by Ann Patchett, a writer for the New York Times Magazine, reflected on these attacks, on the fear, the reckoning this brought people to, uh, the way it brought people to reckon with and number their days. She says this in her article, The fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. But a sniper, taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random, and it's absolutely coming. As far as I know, not a Christian, but she realized from this, by God's common grace, a picture of death that's coming for everyone. That's part of wisdom, Psalm 90 says, numbering your days. Remembering your days are few. So, so what are we to do in light of that? That's part of it. What's, what's, what, is there more? And that's where the rest of the psalm goes. It doesn't end there. The rest of wisdom, so first number your days, and then... Look to God. Look to God and make Him your dwelling place. That's what the rest of the psalm says. Verses 13 to 17. Endless joy. So we had everlasting God, ephemeral man, and now endless joy. Verses 13 through 17. The final section here of the psalm is a prayer to God, saying, God, return to us. Turn again to us. Have compassion on us. You know, this is the Psalm of Moses, right? So you can, you can picture Moses. He himself says something very similar to these words when he is on the mountain uh, after, after the people have worshipped the golden calf. And he's found out about this. Uh, and God has told him he's going to turn from this people, destroy them, start a new nation with Moses. Moses pleads with God. He intercedes with him as a mediator, um, saying, don't harm them. In, Moses, in Exodus 32, verse 12, Moses calls on God to turn from his wrath and relent from harming his people. And the Hebrew for those words, turn and relent, are the same words in the Hebrew that are used in Moses' Psalm 90, verse 13. Turn and relent. Turn and have compassion. That's, that's the context these words are written in. Um, 
We've also been looking at how this psalm was used by the Israelites as a psalm they took with them into exile to hang on to the everlasting dwelling place of God as they went into exile. These words would have resonated with them too, right? They're far from the promised land. They're, they're under the discipline of God for the faithlessness they've, they've shown Him. And they're taking these same words, turn and relent. This is what they pray in verses 14 to 15. They, they cry out for God to make them glad. Verse, verse 14, Satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us early with your mercy. The, the word there for early means morning. Satisfy us in the morning with your mercy. What are they looking for? Uh, just a, a, a new morning, a, a new day, a, like a fresh start? We read in the Scriptures that God gives mercies that are new every morning. But is that what they're looking to? Why do they say here, satisfy us in the morning with your mercy? Well, the, the morning is an important theme in Scripture, and this is picked up by later prophets. Malachi 4.2 picks this up. God promises His people there that the sun of righteousness will rise. There's going to be a sunrise of righteousness that's coming. There's going to be a, 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 an ultimate morning, an ultimate new day. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is singing a song about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and he says this, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is the hope that goes all the way back to here, Moses' psalm, Psalm 90. This is the morning they're looking for. It's when, when God comes in the person of the Son and uh, as the Messiah comes to them. What are they looking for God to do? Satisfy them in the morning, in this day when the Christ comes. With His, with his mercy, the word is chesed, the, the Hebrew word for steadfast love, covenant love. This is what they're hoping and that, that, that a day is coming when it's going to be like a, the sun springing into the sky and steadfast love from God comes to them and satisfies them satisfies them. Their hunger for God satisfied. Their hunger for Him as their dwelling place satisfied. And they say here in the, in the psalm that when this happens, they will have joy, lifelong joy. Verse 15, ask God to make their joy in that day last as long as their pain has lasted and even to outlast it more and more. Their, their prayer is for joy in the presence of God. Then, verses 16 to 17 make it clear to us that they're not just looking for a temporary joy. This is the everlasting God they're hoping in. So the joy they're hoping for is an everlasting joy. And we see that as the psalm goes on in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16, Moses says, God, show your work again. Do your mighty saving power again. Show this people, this generation, your mighty saving power Verse 17, he says, God, cause your beauty to rest on this people. Establish the work of our hands. Let, let what we do not be in vain. You do it. You work in us. You work through us. You make our work to build your kingdom last. This is, this is what Moses is saying. He wants God to do the work of salvation and build his kingdom permanently. To bring this joy that satisfies his people endlessly. And of course, God does. 
This is what Moses was hoping in. This is what the people in exile were hoping in. Christ would come. The sunrise of God's steadfast love would come and satisfy them. That God would build the kingdom. And that's what we've seen in Christ, isn't it? Right? He comes. He's, he's the one who is everlasting God Himself come down and become man. Uh, the display of God's steadfast love. He comes and um, for our sakes, he, he experiences our curse. Takes on our likeness. He becomes like us and uh, He dies and He's buried and He's going from dust to dust. But then He rises gloriously from the dead. Victorious over the grave and over the curse and over the momentariness of this life. He lives forever. And so our great hope is that we make Him our dwelling place. The everlasting God and the everlasting living Jesus Christ our dwelling place. That's our hope. Let's pray together.